Good afternoon, honourable members and honoured guests. It's a pleasure to see so many of you in the chamber this evening as we welcome the Right Honourable Matt Hancock MP for an address and Q&A in the chamber. We're delighted to see the interest and engagement that this event has prompted, but we also request that across this evening's event, you behave in line with the society's forms of the house and treat our guest with the respect and allow him to be heard. <laughs> there will be time for audience questions at the end. After Mr. Hancock and I have left the chamber, please leave as quickly as possible so that our committee can reset the chamber for the debate on same-sex marriage in the Church of England this evening. Without further ado, let me introduce our speaker for this afternoon, not that he needs much introduction. Mr. Hancock is a former Secretary of State for Health and Social Care and the Member of Parliament for West Suffolk. He has previously served as Secretary of State for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport before serving as Health Secretary during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mr. Hancock resigned after being caught breaking government COVID guidelines. And in autumn of 2022, Mr. Hancock went on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, finishing third. He has recently published a memoir entitled The Pandemic Diaries. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. Matt Hancock. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and it's great to be back in this august room. And I'm uh, frankly astonished to see so many of you here uh, and, uh, and delighted. I look forward to a really good uh, discussion this evening. Um, this is the uh, first time that I've done a live event uh, like this since arriving back from my uh, recent trip to Australia. Um, and so that's the first time I've heard the intro with the Australia bit um, added in, um, which I don't know why all of you were laughing. Um, I think, uh, um, and I certainly hope you were voting for me. It's changed, it's, changed my, um, it's changed my life in many ways. One of the ways is that it takes me longer to walk down the street because I'm stopped for selfies. And the thing that happens all the time is people stop me for a selfie and they say something like, oh, my mum thinks you're great. And I say, well, what about you? And then they look sheepish. And they say, they say, can I have a selfie for my mum? Now, I like being, you know, people's mum's favourite I'm a celebrity contestant. Uh, but I do find it quite, I, I do find it quite insulting. Um, and um, uh, what I much prefer is a good, robust debate. And I have that as well from time to time. And no doubt we will have that um, this evening. Um, the, uh, the, the reason I accepted this invitation as my first on my uh, return is because the Oxford Union is such an extraordinary place and a place that has been at the heart of public debate and the training of debate over the centuries. And I've never actually spoken from this podium, so it is a, it's a great honour. Um, and Oxford matters to me uh, for a lot of reasons, but for two in particular that are really that are really important and close to my heart. The first, of course, is that this is where I came as an undergraduate. I arrived as a um, very uh, green, wet behind the ears, 17-year-old at Exeter College to read PPE. Um, I, um, I, I had an absolutely fantastic time. I had a seminal moment at the end of my first term uh, when my tutor took me to one side and said, Matt, you've got the gift of the gab. You can talk, but your essays are terrible. Um, I thought, this isn't going very well. Um, he said, um, we, I think that you are dyslexic. And nobody had mentioned this to me before. 
and I knew that I was rubbish at languages um, and at uh, English I'd, I'd struggled. I'd done A-levels in maths-based subjects, maths, physics, computing, economics, and, I'd, um, I, I, and I can't for the life of me now think why I applied to do a, a, an essay-based degree. Uh, but I arrived doing PPE, I struggled significantly in my first term, and I got diagnosed as dyslexic. And then the education department here taught me how to read and write. They re-taught me. And that has been the absolute foundation of what I've been able to do since. Because without being identified as dyslexic and then given the support I needed to learn how I can read, um, then um, I, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to reach the top table and to do what I did. So Oxford is very close to my heart for that reason. Second reason, which we'll come on to in a bit more detail, is the pandemic, of course. In the pandemic, Oxford University's research performed better than any other single university in the whole world. So that converted a, an entirely emotional uh, bias towards Oxford as an institution. And by the way, I did also go to Cambridge, uh, and I don't say this in my talks there. Um, the, um, it, 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 it turned that into real life-saving research. And the performance of this university during the pandemic has been absolutely extraordinary. We all, of course, know about the vaccine. Uh, I'll tell you a story about the vaccine. AstraZeneca were critical to making that vaccine. They really wanted it to be called the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, uh, uh, Pfizer had successfully uh, elbowed out BioNTech as the name of the other main uh, vaccine at the time. Um, and I insisted that it was called the Oxford uh, vaccine or the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, and uh, to try to make sure that the actual science underpinning it was the thing um, that was recognised. But it wasn't just the vaccine. It was the recovery trial. It was our world in data. I don't know if any of you uh, have been involved in that project. Absolutely brilliant, cutting-edge research uh, that has saved many, many lives. So here I uh, am. Um, unlike many of the committee here, um, I once stood for the union um, I didn't try very hard. I was doing it as a favour for a friend. Um, I didn't get elected, and nor did he. Um, and um, <laughs> I've just about got over it. Um, the, um, uh, the, the, I then, from, um, from here, um, I, I, I went into... Um, I, I worked in my family business. Um, and this was the reason, really, that I ended up in, in politics. Uh, because... The, the business that my, uh, my, my mother ran and my stepfather wrote the code um, was a computer software business. If you've ever typed your postcode into the internet and it brings up your address, um, we wrote that software. My stepdad wrote that software. So I hope he's saved you some time over the years with your online shopping. Um, and in the recession in the 90s, that business nearly collapsed. And this was a seminal moment for me uh, because I'd gone from thinking that I was interested in the technology and I was interested in uh, the business, uh, good, important things. And suddenly I thought, how does the whole world work that a perfectly successful business can nearly get knocked over by something completely outside of their control? I'll return to this theme later. Um, and what happened was that a big customer couldn't pay their bill and we knew that if by the end of the week that business, if that check didn't arrive from, the, from our main customer, if the check didn't arrive by the end of the week, the business would go under, my parents would lose their jobs, 
They employed uh, about just over a dozen people at the time. They would lose their jobs. And it was a harrowing moment. And it made me ask the bigger question of how does the whole system work? How can you ensure better that people don't go through that and that people can build prosperity for themselves and for others? And that, that led me to study economics and PPE here, but it also then led me into public policy because ultimately public policy is about making the world a better place. And I know that sounds glib, but it's actually real. Um, and having worked at the Bank of England for a bit, I realized that actually the big decisions are rightly made in Westminster. In, uh, in a democracy, they, the big decisions should be taken by elected politicians. Uh, and so I moved over uh, to, uh, to Westminster. One of the observations I'd have about uh, politics over the last 20 years um, is that it goes through uh, cycles, but there's some basic facts, there's some basic elements uh, which uh, don't change. And the, the central one of these is the need to engage with what people think, what people want, and what people hope for. And I'm reminded, as I tell this story, of something that happened when I, was, when I first stood for Parliament. Um, because, you know, having gone in and moved over to Westminster, I then decided I wanted to run myself, and I, I stood for Parliament. And I was, um, <laughs> um, I, I was very... Um, I was new to it. Uh, I had this... I'd been selected for this seat, which had been Conservative for 100 years or so. Um, and uh, so I was expected to win it, and I was going around campaigning. I went to the end of a long lane, a road, um, and there was a farm at the end of it, and there was a farmer leaning on his, on his gate at the end of this road, and I was, wanted to pluck up conversation. I was enthusiastic. I went up to him, and I said, uh, so, have you lived here all your life? And he said, nope. Not yet. And in that reply, I thought to myself, the wisdom of the quiet people who don't get themselves involved is something you've always got to listen to uh, in politics. The idea that this guy could see me as a wet-behind-the-ears young 30-something-year-old and uh, thought that my question was uh, banal and ridiculous and wanted to take the mickey, and more of that later. Uh, so in, in politics, I served in a number of different roles, uh, as, the, as the president said. But of course, I'm, uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the one that, I, uh, that got me into the cabinet was uh, at, at DCMS, where I was, the, I was responsible for not only... By night, I was responsible for the, for the theatres and, the, uh, 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 and the film industry uh, and the uh, cultural environment of the, of the country, which is wonderful, and by day for technology and the broadband rollout. But the thing that, the, the job that I was then asked to do uh, by Theresa May was to become uh, health secretary. And of course, I'm most well known for being health secretary uh, during the pandemic. And for me, the pandemic began and the work on it began when I first read about a new pneumonia in China, 
which I read about in the, in the Times newspaper, New Year's Day 2020. And it was on about, it was a news in brief item on about page eight, and I remember thinking, I better have a look at that. Uh, and um, asked for a briefing on it when I got back into the office. I got back into the office on about the, uh, uh, on about the 5th or 6th of, um, uh, of January and got, had a briefing from Chris Whitty, and he said, essentially, we don't know anything about it yet. In, in, the Chinese have regarded it as serious enough to put out a, a warning about it, uh, but we don't really know. And there are these warnings from time to time, but we are worried about this, and we're keeping an eye on it. Um, and um, <laughs> that evening, uh, I was voting in the House of Commons, and I, uh, I saw the Prime Minister, uh, your former president, uh, and I went up to the Prime Minister. I said, Boris, uh, there's something you need to know about. There's a new disease in China that we're quite worried about. And um, Boris had just won this extraordinary majority. He'd just been able to un, un, uh, un, 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 uh, um, unpick the knot that was Brexit by calling an election uh, and then winning it. He had five years, probably ten years ahead of him in office as Prime Minister, uh, he'd managed to uh, unite the North and the South in the way that no Tory politician had been able to do for at least a generation. Uh, he was excited at the prospects of what he could get done. The last thing he wanted to hear about was some disease in China that might come and take over the world. And he said to me, it's your job to worry about these things. Uh, he, said, um, he said, keep an eye on it, Matt, and you know, let me know if there's a problem. Um, and... Um, uh, and, and, uh, and on we went. Um, the, um, clearly, um, the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the virus grew and the pandemic uh, grew. Um, and the single biggest problem that we had in handling it at the start was a total lack of information, a complete uncertainty about what this meant. Um, and I think one of the interesting things reflecting on it now is that having to make huge decisions, like decisions over lockdown, based on very little information, but crucially also based on very little experience of what is viable in a liberal democracy, was extremely, extremely difficult. And at that time, I relied on the thinking that I had done here. And I explain it in this way that we may debate the confines of this, but the British system is essentially one based on a, an agreement across a broad swathe of society and reflected across a broad swathe of politics that a liberal democracy in which you're allowed to get on with what you want to do so long as you don't harm others is the best way of living our lives. That is essentially the Enlightenment settlement that underpins our way of life. It underpins our common law. Of course, there are always debates around how you implement that in a free society. But that is essentially the approach to government that the major parties subscribe to. There have been aberrations. The Corbyn uh, Labour Party approach did not accept that. Um, there have been aberrations on on the right as well, although I would argue not, with, not uh, within the mainstream of the Conservative Party. Um, and I think back to the, uh, 
to the 30s when that was most under pressure uh, in, in this country. But the problem of a pandemic is that the so-called harm principle in which you should allow people essentially to be, uh, to be able to get on with their lives so long as they don't harm others, that harm principle when a virus can pass from one person to the next without the first person knowing about it, the harm principle suddenly becomes central to all questions of policy across the whole piece and ultimately justify action to keep people safe that is radical compared to what could have been done in any other time. And this change in uh, political philosophy, ultimately, requires and calls for much more interventionist action from government than you would ever expect or allow in a liberal democracy. And, 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 and this sort of highfalutin political theory came crashing down on us in, in March, late February, and March 2020, uh, because we went from a, a, a world in which for at least 70 years it had been accepted uh, that it is entirely normal and right to let people, to have uh, liberty and freedom as the prime, um, uh, the prime mainstay of politics, um, into a world in which we regarded intervention in extremely personal parts of people's lives as valid and reasonable. And the British state has never done that before. And the reason is simple. That we knew that if we didn't, then the, the passage of the virus from one person to the other would lead to a very, very large number of deaths, um, probably over half a million um, and we knew that that would lead to the collapse of the um, NHS, um, as we'd seen in Italy. And over a period of about a fortnight, a whole load of politicians whose natural instinct is towards freedom um, had to make these intervention uh, decisions. And we had to do so on the basis of very little uh, information. Uh, but at least the way we thought about it, uh, we had um, some education about in principle. That's what happened in March uh, 2020. It's how we came to the decisions about lockdown. And um, what, what ultimately happened was that I was sat in the cabinet room around the table, Boris on the other side of the table, uh, Rishi uh, at the end of the table, Chris Whitty was there, Patrick Balance and a couple of others. And um, Chris Whitty and I talked about it and there were proposals on the table for what might have to happen to, uh, to education, to schools, to all the other institutions of life. Um, and Chris Whitty was very worried that actually what was needed was not just um, essentially uh, tinkering, but a whole-scale change in behavior by society, and that was the only way we were going to stop this thing. Um, and he, uh, he said, we've got to make a bigger behavioral change. And I turned to the Prime Minister and I said, Prime Minister, we're going to have to tell people to stop all unnecessary social contact. And he said, well, you better tell him then. And he came to the view, actually, that as prime minister, he probably better tell them. Um, and he did. 
Um, and the rest of the lockdown and all the consequences which you all lived through and I lived through and the whole country uh, lived through flowed from that. Um, the, the, the basis of it was uh, sound, necessary uh, and just. All of the details were completely unknown to us at the time. We had to work them all out in incredible speed. Uh, it led to extraordinary complications uh, and irrationalities within the within the rules and how they were applied. Um, but ultimately, it was necessary to keep people safe. And ultimately, we, we, we discovered, we found out that the only way out of the, uh, of the pandemic was uh, the vaccine. And that brings us back uh, to Oxford, uh, because the, uh, the, the, the vaccine that was developed here, um, as well as the uh, American, uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech, German-American uh, vaccine, uh, managed to get us out of the pandemic. Uh, and, they, and here, I'm incredibly proud that we have one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. But that again brought us back to thinking about the, the intellectual purpose behind a vaccine. Because a vaccine not only protects you, but it protects other people. But we all know that vaccines also have side effects. And so we got into the great debate, which you would have been more engaged in in your um, in your as then teenagers and in your 20s largely about whether who should take them because the the simple narrow view which is the safest view is that you should take a vaccine if it protects you more than the risk from the side effects but there is also an essentially social communitarian view that because the vaccine makes it less likely you will pass the disease to somebody else then so you should also take the vaccine to protect others. Now, we took the cautious approach and, we, and vaccines were only recommended by the clinicians when, they, when the evidence showed that they were beneficial to the individual or at least not net harmful when you took into account all of the downsides and all of the uh, uh, incidents that happened, which were all publicly uh, logged, uh, versus the benefit. But there is a broader, again, communitarian as opposed to liberal individualistic approach to the fact that you should take a vaccine in order to protect others. So my, the point of setting this out as I have to you today um, is that the thinking that you do here and the work that you do here is critical to how you learn to think about the big decisions that you may uh, need to take. And it certainly was uh, for me. Who knows what those decisions will be in future? Um, and I'll end on two forward-looking points. The first is this, um, that there is a great debate right now about the future of healthcare and the future of the NHS, which clearly has been under huge pressure. My view on that uh, is that the NHS is an enormous, enormously valuable national asset. Uh, it is one of the best health systems in the world and certainly in terms of the amount that we pay through our taxes for it. It is one of the best value for money systems in the world um, and it needs reform in order to uh, survive. Ultimately, it needs more people, but it has record numbers of doctors and nurses and still the pressures are enormous. We, also, we need to do more to keep people healthy in the first place because it shouldn't be just about fixing people up once they've gone wrong. It should be about protecting people because it is essentially an insurance system in which we all pay the dues through our taxes. 
and we should try to make sure that people are given the support they need to be healthier in the first place. But the absolutely central thing to make it last and to make it uh, survive over the decades to come is that it needs to be far, far better at using modern technology, both for developing the most effective treatments in the world, which we do but could do much better, all the way through to making sure that it is as efficient as possible. And I come back to the vaccination because we built that system based on a proper data architecture. It meant that when you turned up for your vaccine appointment, you only had to wait five to 10 minutes and you could even choose when you wanted to go. And you can't do that for almost other, any other NHS appointment, which is a mistake. And that data, that, that underpinning data structure needs to be radically improved within the NHS to make it survive for the medium term. The second thing, which is absolutely vital today, is to make sure we're prepared for the next pandemic. And to be prepared for the next pandemic, we need to learn the lessons from the last one. Uh, we, we have an inquiry coming up, which will do that. Uh, I published my book in order to uh, add to that, contribute to that debate. But I am seriously worried that there is not enough focus on preparing for the next time this happens to protect us all in future. We saw the news just today that the latest bird flu, which is virulent amongst birds, you might have noticed there's not as many seagulls in the sky as there were. Um, the, um, uh, the latest bird flu has moved into mammals, and that is a, a warning that we should not ignore. Um, and yet, and yet, uh, the budgets for preventing the next pandemic have been cut drastically, and I think the preparation and the work there to ensure that we are ready to go and we learn the lessons from uh, the last one, I think that work needs to be uh, redoubled and needs to be supported and invested in. And finally, uh, something about me. I came out of, um, I obviously uh, left office in a manner with which you may have, uh, a manner you may have read about. Um, I have, um, I've, I have, um, I've reflected on that. And one of the things um, that I've learned um, is that I think it's absolutely critical, absolutely critical for those in uh, politics to be able to engage uh, better, more straightforwardly and more honestly uh, with the public uh, who ultimately we serve. The quality of the political discourse needs to be uh, improved. Um, the, um, this isn't about my particular incident, it's about everything that's happened afterwards. It is about making sure uh, that as the reliance on the BBC and a small number of newspapers completely dissipates, um, that we have a high quality debate um, and that we can have a constructive, rational and sensible debate in which people in a, in a, in a world of social media can properly, properly uh, discuss ideas and the policies that flow from them. I worry uh, that that is uh, disappearing uh, from our national discourse, and I think that the quality of the political discourse uh, needs to uh, improve. It is a, it, there is a dance between politicians and the media. Uh, I've danced that dance, um, and it is, um, uh, and it is uh, brutal, um, and it is necessary for it to be rather prettier uh, in the years ahead. Uh, and so I think that... Uh, we all need to be able to be, uh, uh, to allow our politicians to be more, um, uh, to be more 
true to their feelings and say what they really think. Uh, and if we can do that uh, and have a bit less of the automaton in our politicians, uh, then we'll be better governed as a result. So there you go. That's what I, that's what I had to say. I hope that we can have a debate and a uh, discussion. I'll end on this one thing. I went into the jungle because, um, you know, <laughs> because I basically thought, there's a couple of reasons, but the main reason is I basically thought that people knew about me from, the, from me on a screen, right, um, with two flags behind me, um, and then with the, um, uh, the whole uh, media, what do I call it, media storm shit show, I think is the best uh, description uh, that happened to me. Um, after, after my um, re resignation. Uh, it was, it's an irony of the British system that you have to travel all the way to Australia in order to be able to engage directly with people uh, and show who you, uh, show who you really are um, and to answer questions uh, directly without the sort of um, uh, side that you get uh, in the political uh, uh, discourse. Uh, but the, one of the things that came out of that and that, has come, that I've found since I've left is I have this extraordinary following amongst people who aren't normally that interested in politics. And what I've tried to do is just show that the sorts of people who go into politics are people like, are normal people, right? This is quite an uphill struggle, it turns out, um, explaining that we are uh, just normal people trying to do our best. Um, and um, uh, for any of you interested uh, in going down uh, this route, um, I, uh, I, I warn you that holding on to the fact that you're actually a normal person is a real challenge. Um, and uh, ironically, it's by going on reality TV uh, that, you can, that you can demonstrate that. Anyway, there were some other reasons to go uh, into the jungle. Uh, it was a totally bonkers experience. Um, uh, the, uh, um, and, uh, uh, and, and Sean Walsh is a lovely guy. And uh, with that, I will end. I will open it up to questions. Uh, and I will thank you for your engagement, for coming in such uh, huge numbers. Um, and, but you've got to promise me this. What you've got to promise me is that we, we make sure we interrogate and we learn and that we base decisions that we make when you all go and uh, do amazing things in the future. We base them on the thoughts that we have and the thinking that we did uh, when we had time and the space uh, to do it. And that's what I wanted to come and tell you tonight. Thank you very much.